0: Hello. My name is Matt Cooper. I want to welcome you to Episode 3 of the BSI Insight Series. Today we are talking about notes from the field and examples of real-life data privacy threats. So my name is Matt Cooper. I'm the U.S. Director of the Cyber Risk and Advisory Team at BSI. I've spent my 20-year career in information technology and security, and Today we're gonna be talking about data privacy. So I'm joined by Nigel Hawthorne. Nigel, would you like to uh, introduce yourself?
1: Yeah, sure, thanks Matt. And uh, it's great to be back here again. My name's Nigel Hawthorne and I'm the spokesperson for cloud and privacy at McAfee based in Europe.
0: So Nigel, to get us started today, I want to ask you a question. And that is, what do you see as uh, the most common threats organizations are facing with respect to data privacy?
1: My area is cloud and so what I see is that we've moved on from what used to be the case um, 10 years ago or so where actually questions of data traffic movement were relatively simple and you would say you know this is a trusted place to go this is an untrusted place to go now It's much more nuanced and we need to look at all sorts of different attributes at the same time to try to make appropriate decisions. And so it's a difficult balance to define policies that both keep data secure and allow the users to be productive. Um, Too open and data could be lost, too closed and sadly the frustrated employees can go to uh, different methods that are even more risky. And and let me give you an example. I was just working on a presentation that's something like 40 megabytes in size. Now, if I want to share that with you, what do I do? Probably I can't email it to you because either my email service or your email service will say that they don't allow attachments over a certain size. Now, I've got a whole uh, conversation I can have about why that's perhaps not appropriate uh, policy right now, but it's a policy that's implemented in many organizations. So then what do I do? Um, I want to get this to you. I could go to OneDrive, Box or Dropbox, one of those um, enterprise focused uh, sharing sites, and I could upload the file and then try to create a link for you. But some companies will actually block those. So if they block those, then what do I do? And the sad thing is I will probably go and go to Google, type in bulk file transfer and I'll find one of the many hundreds of services that you haven't heard about and you haven't blocked. And that's probably even more dangerous because who knows what their terms and conditions are? Who knows where the data might go? So what we need to do, I think, is sit down as a a group of people with multiple disciplines, so governance, risk, compliance, legal, IT, users, etc. come together and say, here's a scenario, what should the policy be? And we should really look at examples such as that and other examples we can think of to try to define the appropriate internal policies for our company based on the sort of data that we have, the sort of people that we have, how much interaction we have with third parties. So we need to then decide do we choose a particular service that we trust and if we do we should start pointing our users to that service redirect them and say hey Nigel uh, the company doesn't like Dropbox for example but we use Box so please log in here and use that service so we're trying to give the users the right way to do things not just stopping them from uh, doing what we don't want. And I think that way we can get users trained and understanding the reasons why we've implemented policies, as well as, of course, keeping data secure. Good. Uh, you know, that, that comment points to, I think, a several in,
0: interesting uh, topics in data privacy, uh, the first of which is this uh, significant use of third parties. And one question I would have for you is when a company is looking at evaluating these third parties what what should they even be considering you know i think some people think hey it's it's box it's dropbox that's a major service so isn't that secure H- how should they be looking at these questions
1: yeah i guess um you can come at this from multiple angles the first one would be the service itself and you you bring up a good point you know here's a service i've heard about tell me some things about that service. Maybe it's their legal terms and conditions. Maybe it's technical. Do they encrypt data in transit? Do they encrypt data at rest? Um, Some people might say it's about geolocation. Where's the data being stored? Um, So all sorts of different attributes, some of which are important to some enterprises and some of which are important to others. But that's still only half a story because one of the phrases I use quite often is that even the safest car can be driven dangerously. Even once you've decided that this particular service is okay, you've got to make sure that what the user's doing with it is also okay. And, you know, let's go back to that example. It's okay for me to share a presentation with you. I've looked at the notes and there's nothing in there that's confidential. But what if, instead of sharing a presentation, I didn't realize I started sharing a folder. And in that folder, there were lots of other files, one called, you know, customers.xls, for instance. So sometimes it's not just the service, but how it's used, and you need to make sure that you're you're putting in as many policies as you can, and you're integrating things like DLP and access control to make sure that your users don't inadvertently overshare information.
0: That makes sense to me Nigel and you know to me that comment points to really the need for a couple things uh, one is education of our own users especially around the different kinds of data that an organization may have and process so i think as you said it really matters what type of data are we sharing with this third party would you agree
1: Yeah absolutely i mean it should all start from the data sometimes that's difficult to do so you have to make a, a more sweeping judgment, but if you can start from the data, of course, um, then every every appropriate policy can fall out from that. Good, and then uh, another
0: control that I think this relates to is the idea of a data inventory. That is, a company having an organized approach and a systemized way of knowing what kind of data are we sending to which service, et cetera? Uh, Is that something that you find customers uh, are interested in or might need some advice on?
1: Yeah, I mean, it it is all about governance and setting appropriate policies and trying to make sure that we're looking at um, things from a data-centric view of the world. And sadly, I think many people I talk to who are on the IT side look at things from a a traffic point of view. You know, where is the traffic going? Which device is connecting to which service? And really they need to work together with the data owners, whoever is tagging data or trying to um, evaluate which data is sensitive and which data is not.
0: We said we were gonna talk about some real life threats to the data. And to my mind, one of the first things that comes up is the idea of a breach. Uh, A breach that could happen from your organization or a breach that could happen via a third party that you're using. Uh, And I think you'd agree that breach becomes very expensive, especially when you're talking about PII or data that might be regulated under something like GDPR or CCPA. Would you agree with that, that that is a primary concern in terms of the threats to a privacy program?
1: It is. And I think, you know, we've all talked about GDPR for many years, but you bring up CCPA. And I think that's really interesting because, you know, from 1st of January this year, that has really um, got people's minds racing. And I think that mid-sized U.S. companies have not needed to worry too much about GDPR but CCPA has has changed all that. And I, Do you want to bring up an example that uh, I know you've got?
0: Yeah, I do, actually. Um, there's a couple interesting examples with respect to CCPA. So the first is the breach. I think that's the one everyone's pretty familiar with. And, you know, some, some big examples here are the recent Marriott breach, uh, possibly even the Hannah Anderson breach, which was uh, one of the first cases brought under CCPA, but there are other lawsuits under CCPA having to do with third parties, and these have to do with, in some cases, inappropriate notice to consumers, uh, a lack of ability to opt out of data sharing with these third parties, or sharing without consent. Uh, A couple examples I think of are the House Party lawsuit where they were alleged to have shared data with Facebook without proper consent uh, or notice to their customers, Uh, and then similar cases with both Ring and Zoom. In particular, I I think sharing data uh, for marketing purposes is uh, something that is, I would say, a common practice, especially among US companies and probably global companies. And it's something where It can be very technically complex to understand exactly what's happening. So if I am allowing a third party integration for marketing purposes and allowing a company to place cookies or tags or pixels on a web property, how do I put in processes for my legal team to understand exactly what data is being collected and exactly where that data is going so I can provide actionable notice to my customers and an ability to opt out or consent to that data sharing. I think that's an inherent challenge and to my mind you know a couple of the solutions are a a very robust vendor onboarding process where any vendor that we expect to share PII with gets a rigorous and somewhat technical assessment upfront as to what kinds of technologies they're going to integrate into our technology environment uh, to capture and share third-party data. What exactly are they going to be sharing and what are the potential risks to data subjects? Any, any further thoughts or comments on that?
1: Yeah, well, as someone who's worked in various marketing departments, um, I have stood up on stages before now and said, you know, your biggest risk is the marketing team because we tend to have this idea of, uh, wow, look at this shiny new feature that we could add. We just need to add this little uh, uh, cookie here and we can get uh, personalization for our uh, people coming to our website. And this third party service will tell me whether this person has been on other websites as well. Wow, isn't that fantastic? And and honestly the last thing that marketing people are thinking about is reasons not to do something. Um, So unfortunately you're quite right, you know a robust onboarding program and actually training your internal employees to um, understand that they do need to work within the standard corporate um, uh, structures and and let me give you perhaps, perhaps this might seem a uh, A simplistic example but uh, what if every company I think has probably got a webinar service, maybe more than one, where they talk to customers and is that integrated with a single sign-on service? Because probably multiple people in the marketing department can log into that webinar service, see who's logged on to previous webinars, look at the settings for new ones and if an employee leaves and then joins someone else do they still have those credentials? Are they still able to come in and then farm that information? And I think, sadly, we find that because we haven't implemented robust policy controls, we haven't integrated with global single sign-on services, as an example, that um, when somebody leaves an organization nowadays, they typically still have access to one or two of the services that they were using. So we really need to all understand our position in the shared responsibility model, um, whatever department we are, because we're probably running applications in the cloud that a few years ago didn't exist. You know, I think that's a really excellent point.
0: And it it raises another uh, topic that I think of with respect to this, which is the scope of your security controls. And we work with a lot of, organizations to help them get ready for you know SOC 2 certification or ISO 27001 certification and one of the exercises we do is we scope the ISMS or we scope the SOC 2 and typically these companies have a product or service oftentimes a SaaS product and that's their quote-unquote production environment this is the technology they are delivering to their customers And so we'll oftentimes scope that security system around that production environment. And so over there, we may have robust single sign-on, we may have two-factor authentication, we may have user review, but as a matter of practicality, we don't wanna scope in all of our quote, business applications. And so oftentimes those don't receive the focus of the information security department that the production environment does and those business applications might be left to the business to run so your sales force might be run by your sales team or other marketing apps might be run by the marketing team and the the website might be managed by the marketing team without a lot of oversight or scrutiny for the from the security team and therefore, the security controls that we're doing in production are not being applied to those third-party apps. Now, with privacy, I feel like companies need to re-examine that relationship. Uh, agree? Any any thoughts you might have along those lines?
1: Yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right. And I, I think that we should really be welcoming things like GDPR and CCPA as a catalyst for change and making sure that we're taking things more seriously. Um, What do you think being based in the States is the main driver? Is it the fines or is it something else with CCPA?
0: That's a terrific question. Um, You know, and this this raises the topic also of trust and brand reputation. And I find this to be, again, a very interesting question because we look at things like the Marriott breach, let's say, and clearly it's a quite expensive for them to just deal with the breach, the regulatory fines. But what is the impact on the customer experience and the customer's willingness to continue to use that brand? I mean, I think Target is another classic example. Are consumers really changing their behavior based on breaches or privacy disclosures? Or do we accept that as a reality of the modern internet connected world. And I don't know the answer to that. And I think the answer may be different in the United States where I don't feel we have the privacy culture that is already embedded in Europe. And I'd be really interested to hear your perspective from that uh, as someone who's working in Europe.
1: Well, I think you're right. And as someone who's had his data lost many times by different people, I probably behave differently, depending on how they've dealt with it. I remember a hotel chain some years ago that wrote to me and said, um, this is what happened. This was the data of yours that was lost. Um, uh, and you know, we're really sorry about it. And at the time, they were one of the few that actually came out and was public. And and I, in my view, I thought, oh, you know what? I trust them more. They're being honest and upfront about it. Whereas those companies where they seem to have to get some of the information dragged out of them, um, I trust less. And I must admit, I've changed my service provider after they lost uh, data for broadband. But have I really changed behavior on uh, airlines? I don't know. I I think it depends if you've got a very easy alternative. But you're right though, I mean even Europe is not one place so I know some colleagues working in other countries who have a very much more absolutionist view, if my data gets lost I will never use that company again. Um, And I think this is where um, I've seen a change in in attitude here that the fines can be eye-watering, however I do think that it's loss of business, loss of brand, class action lawsuits, the long tail that um, years later you type in uh, an organization and one of the first stories you find is data loss. So I, I think that we are getting to a point now where the fines are one thing, but actually it's everything else coming together that is a bigger overall business impact. I totally agree. And, and to answer your question,
0: you know, yes, I do think ultimately at the end of the day, the driver for, for organizations to, you know, apply resources to managing privacy does relate to their risk of some sort of financial loss. And you mentioned fines. That's certainly a part of it. Uh, but also now, as you mentioned, class action lawsuits, you have uh, lawyers who are now going to be looking at these privacy regulations like CCPA. And looking to creatively apply them as their own business to uh, litigate against companies for any perceived violations under that regulation, and I think that changes the risk environment for companies. It's not now, what did the regulator, you know, find against me, but uh, what what legal risk do I face for any perceived violation from a privacy regulation? And, of course, CCPA is just simply a state-level regulation. I think we're going to see more of those in the United States. There's 49 other states that have yet to put their own legislation in place, and I don't see a, a national uniform approach uh, taking shape anytime time in the near future. Any Any thoughts on that?
1: Yeah and of course there's uh, a couple of hundred countries in the world and many of them have introduced uh, laws and regulations uh, that are similar, that start from the same sort of basis which is assume that the individual owns their own data and everything else falls from that and honestly I think that's a good thing. I think that we should be treating people's data as if it's ours, and uh, treating it with a lot more respect than perhaps some of us do. So when I see these lawsuits,
0: Nigel, for uh, breach, what I, the allegation, uh, the complaint, tends to be that the company didn't have adequate technical and organizational measures. So with respect to that, aren't we just now back to basic information security as a mitigation against these risks?
1: Yeah, I think we do have to go back to first principles and I think that the important thing to learn is that doing nothing can be a lot more costly than putting in a robust system of policies and procedures and technology when you need it. And um, we all need to have a look, have a new review of the data handling methodologies where data lives, which applications are being used, where our users are, what devices they're using, et cetera. Uh, Because in this world where so many of us are working uh, remotely, then so many things have changed in the last 12 months, that it is time for um, a complete review of what's going on. Very good point.
0: Uh, You know, uh, just kind of in closing here, I I was, In preparation for this call, looking at the uh, 2020 breach cost report that IBM and the Ponemon Institute put out, it showed the average cost of breach to be just under $4 million. But one of the interesting uh, highlights for me was uh, the finding, and if I could quote one of the analysts, he said, What we saw was an increasing divergence between organizations that took effective cybersecurity precautions versus orgs that didn't. The divergence has been increasing year over year and organizations that are engaging in effective cybersecurity practices are seeing significantly reduced costs, whereas organizations that aren't engaging in these same practices are facing significantly higher costs. So to me, Nigel, that's the takeaway here is we need to be investing in appropriate protections and a program
1: to manage these risks. Sounds reasonable to me. Sounds like uh, the cost of doing nothing is going up. Absolutely. Nigel, it's been a pleasure talking with you about this
0: today. I hope we get a chance to do it again in the future.
1: You too, thanks very much.